Please have Psalm 24 open in front of you this evening as we consider uh, the words of this psalm together tonight. Our theme is Get Ready for the King. Get Ready for the King. Wonder where a combination of those words being shouted around your house this evening or this morning. Would you hurry up? Come on, get ready. We're about to go. And anxiety levels rise and tension rises as the time fast approaches that we need to be out of the house to get to church. Maybe you felt some of that anxiety on the big days in your life. You're trying to get to a wedding or a graduation or a big sporting event and you grow anxious and nervous because you want everyone to be ready. I remember getting a bit sharp with some of my own family members in the morning of my own wedding day. It's very keen to get going and there were far too many pictures being taken in the garden and looking for the right light and fixing people's ties and I was right, let's just go. So we can find ourselves in that at times imploring people, would you get ready? It's time. In Psalm 24, King David is urging God's people and everyone else to be ready for a momentous day, the arrival of a great and glorious king. Most likely David wrote this psalm either immediately before or after the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, which you can read about in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But you remember this, this ornate holy box? It represented God's presence in Jerusalem with his people. And it was greeted to great fanfare, this wonderful moment in the life of Israel. David, of course, was a great king himself. Loved by his people. Successful on the battlefield. Faithful to his God. But in this psalm, David writes about an even greater king. He says in verse 10 at the end of the psalm, Who is this King of glory? And the answer is, it's the Lord of hosts. Israel's God, not David, but the God of David. This psalm was written to prepare God's people for a royal visit. The great King coming into their midst. And we can relate to that a little bit. We've seen... Our king and other dignitaries over the years arrive in Northern Ireland. We, we see all the hype and we see all the, the busy preparation that's made. All the anticipation. Well, this psalm is telling us, friends, about a royal visit of universal divine proportions. And it's telling us to get ready. And we're to get ready by understanding this king who is coming. That's what determines, isn't it, uh, the expectation that goes into an event. People say, what's all the fuss about? And others say, well, do you not know who it is that's coming? And who they are and what they've done? And and an appreciation and an understanding of the one who is arriving is our motivation to be ready. Let's think together about this king for whom we must be ready this evening. See, first of all, in the psalm that he is God, the king of creation. God, the king of creation. In the original Hebrew, the very first word of this psalm is the name of God, Yahweh. You see there in your Bibles, uh, some of your translations might have Jehovah, others have the Lord in block capitals. But in the original Hebrew, that, that name of God comes first. Yahweh's the earth is. Yahweh's the earth is. And this was a bold statement for David to make in his day because Every nation in David's day had their own God. Some of them had multiple gods. 
We tend to think, you know, well, just Old Testament times, everyone around just believed in one God the way we do today. And it's only in more recent times that there's all kinds of notions about other gods. Now, that's not true at all. The the nations around Israel in David's day, just as it was in Abraham's day, just as it was in the days of Moses in Egypt, they all had multiple gods. And the belief was God A rules this place, God S B rules the other place. And there's this constant rivalry amongst the gods. No other religion claimed that one God ruled the whole world. But David is emphatic in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. Not just the promised land, Israel. doesn't say Israel is the Lord's. He says the whole earth is the Lord's. Uh, And the meaning there, the fullness thereof, it means... The earth and all its stuff. The world and everything in it. He goes on. The world and those who dwell therein. Every single person. Belongs to the Lord. And then David gives. The reason why God can lay claim to the whole world. He says in verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas. And established it upon the rivers. You might remember, if you have very good memories, back to a couple of years ago when we looked at uh, the, the first couple of chapters of Genesis. We looked at the creation account. And I was explaining to you how Genesis, authored, we believe, by Moses, it was, it was an apologetic, it was a defense uh, of, of true faith, of, of, of what really happened at creation. Because by the time of Moses, again, already, there were all these myths about how the world had come into existence. The Egyptians had their beliefs. The people of Mesopotamia, where Abraham had come from, they had had their beliefs. And it was the same in David's day. Uh, And and just as today people would laugh off the notion that one God created the whole world, today they laugh it off under the the false religion of uh, macroevolution. But in David's day they laughed it off because they said, oh, with all these different gods and goddesses, they, they sort of all had one big almighty fight. Uh, And so it resulted in the chaos of the world. You have the raging seas. You have all the chaos on the land. You have the gods floating about in the skies. uh, And that's how creation came to be. One big fluke of cosmic proportions. But again, David gives us the truth of it here. He says, one God, the true God, the king, founded it all. He put the land upon the seas. It's not that one God rules the, world, the, the, the land and another God rules the ocean. Our God, our King, made it all. The word established in verse 2 means that he continually maintains it. God keeps the whole world in check. Now we know, of course, that that does not mean that our world is, as it is at the moment, Perfect. That there's, there's no problems, there's no dangers or difficulties in our world. Or even the natural world, the Bible tells us, has been impacted by human sin. And so we see tsunamis or floods or hurricanes or wildfires or earthquakes. And we see all the, all the war and all the loss and all the division amongst mankind. And all of that is because of our sin. But nonetheless, friends, the world and its dwellers still belong to the Lord. He made it. We belong to him. 
He is our king. There's that famous scene in the movie Titanic where Leonardo DiCaprio's character goes right up to the bow of the ship as it's speeding along on day one when everything is okay. And he shouts, I'm the king of the world. And it's a famous scene partly because it's so cheesy but also because of the irony. Here's this carefree man full of life. But we know what's going to happen to the character and to the ship. He's going to get caught up in this disaster. His, his world is going to be destroyed and there's going to be nothing he's able to do about it. Well, God really is the king of the world and the world is completely under his control. Well, could you find a more unpopular message than that in our culture today? To say that God is the king of this world and the king of every person in this world, it just sounds childish to some people and it sounds offensive to many others. Because, of course, the attitude of many people today is, I'm the king of the world and there's no irony intended. I answer to no one but myself. I know my rights. I know what I'm entitled to. If we hear one more person uh, calling into radio shows and talking about all the things they're entitled to, no one can tell me otherwise. People don't want to accept decisions and policies that don't suit them. And so they're, they're complained about and they're argued about and they're protested over and over again. Inquiries and investigations. Elections are held and then they have to be held again a year or two later because we don't like the results. Some of you have experienced young people in these last few years come looking for a job. And before they sign up, they tell the employer their list of demands. Well, I won't be able to work these, these days and I'm really looking for this pay. And if I don't get this pay, I'll be going somewhere else. And they've been encouraged by the culture of our world to think that the world revolves around them. Other people think that the natural world itself is king and God. Or perhaps more accurately, Goddess, Mother Earth. A few years ago, Harry and Meghan Markle stated that they planned to have no more than two children together. Which of course is entirely their choice. But the reason they gave for this decision was because it would be good for the environment if they only had two children. It's just nonsense. Some people are more persuaded that it's worth worshipping Mother Earth than Father God, our King, who made the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And of course, what is true of Yahweh, the name of God that we see in this psalm, what is true of him is also true of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh. Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 to 16, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn uh, means that he is the right to rule all creation. The way a firstborn son uh, in that culture would have had the right to rule the whole estate or would have had the right to the best of the estate. He's saying Jesus' claim is over all the earth. Paul goes on, For by him... All things were created by Christ in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things, he repeats it, were created through him and for him. So friends, Paul says here the same thing that David is saying. 
In Psalm 24, Jesus gets to rule all things because Jesus has made all things. God created the world through him. Remember that's how John puts it in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and was God. And it was by God's word that he made the world. Genesis 1. God spoke and it came into being. It was through Christ that God made Niagara Falls and the Cape of Good Hope. It was through Christ that the Arctic and the Antarctic have come to be. It was through Christ that every fascinating creature that Sir David Attenborough has ever put in your TV screen came into existence. And all the people are his as well. The people of this island belong to God. The people of Great Britain belong to God. The people of France and the people of Laos and North Korea and Spain and South Africa and everywhere in between. That being the case, friends, this king deserves our worship, our love, our obedience. When you know who the owner is, it changes everything. You have to give the owner, the creator, their due. If you moved into a new house and discovered a beautiful old painting lying under a rag in the attic, and you just know looking at it, this, this is, this is a, a rare piece, this is, this is priceless. It's in a beautiful golden frame. Well, you have to go and track down the owner. It would be wicked for you to go and sell that painting and make profit yourself. It's not yours. It would also be wicked to go and destroy it. You have to go and give the owner what belongs to them. The creator of this world is the owner, the king of this world. He's the king of your life and mine. And even as Christians, we hear that. And the old man within us, the the, the sinful flesh that we're still fighting against, it it resists that truth. Because part of us is just thinking, well, could I not do with just holding on to a little bit? And being my own king. But there's also great reassurance in these words. That Yahweh's the earth is and everyone who dwells in it. Do you not hear hear that and, and hear comfort and reassurance as a believer this evening? In this seemingly chaotic world, in this culture of ours that is so spiritually sleepy and in which politically and economically and everything else, things just seem to be in a bit of a downward spiral at the moment. One writer says, because the universe is held in a nail-scarred hand, I am stopped from going crazy. Because the universe is held in a nail-scarred hand, I'm kept from going crazy. The world is not complete chaos. And it's not going to spiral into destruction because of man's man's work, man's foolishness. It's in the hands of Christ who made it and who lays claim to everything in it, including you and me. So God, the creator king. Secondly, God, the holy king. God, the holy king. This psalm starts with a very wide scope. The world And everything in it. But then in verse 3, David zooms in right into the hillside of Jerusalem. He says in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And so David is zooming right in on the place of worship. The place where God's people are able to meet him. And isn't that an amazing thing? That the king that David has just described is 
is approachable. There is, there is a place where we can go and meet with him. And yet it's not possible for just anyone, any time, to go meet with him, to, to have fellowship with him. Look what David says in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy presence? He's saying it is possible, but not for everyone. And he gives us the requirements. If we, if we want to go and meet this king, if we want to, to, as it were, approach the throne of the king. Look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. <clears throat> Clean hands there literally means guilt-free hands. Our hands in Scripture often symbolize our actions, <coughs> the, the things that we do. David says, whoever is going to enjoy fellowship with this holy God, this great king, must be a person of guiltless, perfectly good <coughs> actions. A pure heart, he says. We don't just need clean hands on the outside. We need to have a pure, spotless, innocent soul. The, the part of us that no one sees needs to be right as well. Remember, this is what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. That he said that they were like cups that were washed on the outside. But then you lift it and you look inside and you think, oh, it's full of dirt. hasn't been cleaned properly. Jesus says that's what the, the Pharisees were like. And thirdly, he says, whoever dwells with God must not lift up his soul to what is false. This means someone completely committed to the worship of God who hasn't, uh, as he says, uh, as he says here, uh, lifted up his soul to what is false. That means worship of idols. In Psalm 25, verse 1, David says, to you, Lord, I lift up my soul. In the sense of lifting up your soul, it's talking about worship. And this is someone who must have always exclusively and, com- and only worshipped the living God. Lastly, he says, this must be someone who does not swear falsely or deceitfully. Someone who hasn't been casual with their words. Who doesn't blaspheme God's name or tell lies, whether we would call them big fat porkies or little white lies. They're all lies in God's eyes. So the person who can dwell with this great king, with God, must have innocent hands, an innocent mouth. An innocent mind and an innocent heart. And we start to see the problem. None of us qualify. This doesn't describe you and it doesn't describe me. And yet if we want to be with God. If we want to be, wel- if we want to be able to welcome this great and glorious king. If, we, if we're to be ready to meet him. This is the standard. Holiness. Perfect righteousness. But before we despair too much of what God requires, David also tells us what God gives. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. He, that's this holy worshiper, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the very thing that we lack, David says God is willing to give righteousness, holiness, Blamelessness. He's willing to cover over our guilt, 
our guilty hands, our guilty mouth, our guilty heart. He's willing to cover it all over with perfect righteousness. Charles Spurgeon says, The saints ascend the hill of the Lord as receivers rather than givers. They do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which they have received. Wonder, do you think of yourself that way as you come to worship each week, friends? Yes, we come and we offer praise and we, uh, we offer prayer and, and we bring ourselves here. But in a sense, we come not as givers, but even more as receivers. We come to receive and remind ourselves of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. That he, who of course is this perfect holy worshipper, he gives us righteousness. He clothes us with righteousness. He covers over our sin so that we can stand in the presence of our holy God. For David, who went to worship at the tabernacle, or for Solomon, who eventually built that glorious temple, they knew that those were places that really they were, in a sense, those, those places were bloodbaths. Just every day of the week, and especially at the festival times, lambs and goats and bulls were sacrificed there. Their blood was shed, and the message was clear. There's atonement needed. A covering is needed over the people's sin. And that was the basis upon which David and the people could come before God. And even then in the Old Testament, there was that distance. There was that curtain of separation. There was that knowledge that only the priests could go into the Holy of Holies. And today we know the curtain has been torn down miraculously upon the death of Christ. And we know that the way has been completely opened through Christ. And we know that his blood covers over a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives us a long list of the kinds of sinful people who will not be welcomed into the kingdom of God, who who cannot come into the presence of the king. Cheats and liars and sexually immoral people. And then Paul finishes by saying in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. Friends what the king demands. He also gives. Psalm 24 verse 4. Perfectly describes the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also perfectly describes. What Jesus Christ has done for you. If your faith is in him. He has made you this holy worshipper. When God looks at your heart Christian. He sees a pure heart. When he looks at your hands, he sees pure hands. When he, looks at you, when he listens to the words that come out of your mouth, he hears pure words. And if that sounds too good to be true, just notice whose name appears in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, the psalmist says, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We don't know different suggestions as to why the name of Jacob should suddenly appear, but most writers suggest that David is saying that we are to seek God in the same way that Jacob sought God. Well, how was that? Well, you might know the story in Genesis 32. Remember how Jacob, making his way back to the promised land, and a man wrestles with Jacob all night, and that man is, is God incarnate. And Jacob says in Genesis 32, 26, I will not go unless you bless me. 
Jacob who had been a cheat and a wimp and a liar and an adulterer. But when God incarnate wrestled with him, Jacob refused to let go until he had received righteousness. Until he had received the blessing of God. And so David says that like him we are to come empty handed and trusting in the righteousness that only our king can provide. As you walk in these doors each week to worship friends or indeed as you come at any other time before God and worship. Whose righteousness are you trusting in? Your own or Christ's? And does it not fill us with awe and reverence to come to worship and to consider that God, the King of all the earth and God, the King of holiness has made us holy so that we can dwell with him. We ought to come to worship prepared. I know that's difficult at times in the busyness of family life, but the call to worship is a moment to settle ourselves and to prepare And to consider the awesome privilege God has given us of communing with him. Worshipping with him. Ascending Mount Zion. As the writer of the Hebrews says. That that holy mountain. Joining our hearts and our voices. With the hearts and voices of heaven. How is it that we're even allowed to do that? It's because of the righteousness that he gives. Through our perfect king. The Lord Jesus Christ. So God, the creator king, God, the holy king. Thirdly and finally, God, the victorious and returning king. God, the victorious and returning king. It's here at the end of the psalm that most commentators point to and say that perhaps this psalm was written to celebrate the ark arriving in Jerusalem. Because in verses 7 to 10, David imagines a conversation taking place between the gatekeepers of Jerusalem And a procession of worshippers coming up to the city. If you look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And so in ancient times, when a visiting king would travel to a city, this is what would happen. The gates were always kept shut uh, to defend the city from surprise attacks. But the announcement would be made, open the gates. It's the king of wherever, king of France, king of Spain, whoever it was. Had come to town. And just the name alone. Told the gatekeepers. The importance of the person about to come in. Well here it's the king of glory. The most important. The most significant. The greatest. The highest of all kings. And the language in these last few verses. Is military language. If you look at verse 8. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Language there. The language echoes the language of Exodus 15 when the Israelites celebrated God bringing them through the Red Sea and destroying their enemies behind them. See, here's why Jerusalem should be excited to greet its king. Because her king has fought for her. Her king has rescued her. And now the king comes to be with his people. So welcome him in. In verse 10, the question is repeated. Who is this king of glory? And this time he's described as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. It's interesting, that particular description of God is only used seven times in the Psalms. It speaks of him having control over all the armies of heaven and earth. 
Every possible source of military might and power in the universe, spiritual or otherwise, is at his beck and call. He reigns over it, a victorious king. The media was drawing attention yesterday to the fact that King Charles was the the first monarch in, what was it, 40 odd years to actually ride on horseback in in the Trooping trooping the Colour, that annual tradition that took place yesterday. It's this sort of show of pageantry, really, the king on horseback and some of his soldiers all around him. Looks very nice, very impressive in some ways, but it's nothing compared to the power of the Lord of hosts. He's a victorious, mighty king. And again, that's Jesus Christ today, friends, the Lord of hosts, the king of glory what we come to celebrate each and every week. It's why we call today the Lord's Day. Because today is the day that we celebrate his great victory over Satan and sin and death. And this psalm actually ends on a cliffhanger. Because we don't get to see the king come into the city. David's finished the psalm like that very deliberately. To, to help us anticipate the coming of our king. And you might be wondering, well, which coming of our King, the Lord Jesus, are we to think of here in this psalm? Several arrivals of Jesus come to mind. You might think firstly of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The crowds were all shouting that day, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. There was Jesus arriving in Jerusalem to conquer his enemies once and for all. But in a way very different from anyone expected. We might also think of Jesus' arrival back into heaven's glory. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended back into heaven where he still sits today. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened when Jesus arrived back in heaven, other than that he sat down on his throne. But Colossians 2 verse 15 says that when Jesus arrived, he arrived triumphant over the power of Satan and the wicked powers of the world. And so perhaps we might think of that as we read Psalm 24. Then also this psalm reminds us that Jesus will one day arrive back on the earth. And Revelation 19.15 tells us what will happen on that day. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh he has a name written. King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. It's fine to think about Jesus, the loving Saviour, the loving, gentle Shepherd. But he is not a wimp and he's not a pushover. And when he appears again, he will appear as an awesome judge. And he will quickly win the final battle against his enemies and be declared the victor. And the question is, will you be ready for that arrival? And that's the last arrival that this psalm prompts us to think about. The arrival of the king in your life and mine. You have everything you need to know to answer that question tonight. Who is the king of glory? He is Christ, the creator, the holy one, the righteous one. Who gifts righteousness to those who trust in him. The only question is, will you be glad to see him? 
Will you be recognised as one of the king's allies when he returns? Have you accepted him through the gateway of your heart, so to speak? Near the end of the first Lord of the Rings movie, there's a a touching scene between two characters, Aragorn and Boromir. Aragorn is the, the rightful king of their country. Boromir has always wanted to be king and Uh, At times there's been a bit of jealousy and tension from Boromir towards Aragon. But eventually they they fight a battle together and Boromir is fatally wounded whilst fighting alongside Aragon. And as Boromir dies, he regrets the hostility he showed to Aragon. But Aragon says to him as he dies, I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you I will not let the white city fall, nor our people feel. And Boromir is amazed at Aragon's words. He says, our people, in other words, you count me as, as one of your people. Aragon says, yes, our people. And amazed at the grace of the king, Boromir utters his final words. I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. And Boromir dies an ally of the king. Will you die an ally of the king? Will you be recognized on the day of his return as an ally of the king? Are you ready for that day? If you're not ready, get ready. If you are ready, rejoice and look forward to his final arrival by making him known, by drawing near in worship, by obeying his word. Amen.